0: What, in addition to the right equipment, does it take for the job of film editing? Welcome to The Cutting Room. I'm your host, Gordon Burkell, and in this episode, we have Doug Abel. Doug worked on a little documentary series. If you haven't heard of this documentary series, you're going to definitely want to check it out. It's called Tiger King we're gonna get into lots of things including the reason why they made the editorial choices they made, things that they cut out, and much much more. Now if you like what we're doing here then you're definitely gonna to want to check out FilmmakerU.com. Filmmaker, letter U, FilmmakerU.com is a website I created where we bring in the top people who are currently working on major projects from the colors of Mad Max Fury Road to the sound designer for Martin Scorsese and they show you their tricks techniques and ideas behind why they make the decisions they do so check that out at filmmakeru.com. that's filmmaker the letter u.com now with all that said here's my interview with Doug Abel about Tiger King as a documentary film editor what is your approach to finding the story in mounds of footage when you're working on a project
1: Well, I think with a documentary, you are so limited to just the luck of the draw in terms of what they managed to film, what they, the directors or the producers had in mind when they were filming. And so ultimately, if you want an entertaining documentary, you want to find the scenes. And so I find a lot of times the way this works is you just organically, by watching the material, you say, oh, well, here's a little scene, a little verite moment. And you start building those. And, you know, of course you've got interviews. If it's a typical interview, and now that we're no longer shooting film and actually you can just let people prattle on, you typically have hours and hours of interviews. So I'm a big, big, big believer in transcripts. And I'm also a big, big believer in uh, rolling cameras if you can. Helps us in the edit so much. So between the scenes that sort of Point towards these little Verite scenes assuming this is kind of more of a traditional documentary that will sort of toggle between interviews and Verite uh, you start to build those and then you know I use a lot of markers I'll typically do like a number of passes on selects of course if you're at the beginning of the project you don't necessarily know what it exactly what it's going to be about so I do a lot of markers and just on different topics and then I will do a number of passes I usually do a first pass that will be like really broad selects so if it was a four hour interview believe me i King, There were plenty of four hour interviews. My first pass might be 90 minutes of material just because I don't know exactly what I'm going to use. So I, I try to whittle everything down into these select sequences and I'm very conservative, but I have all my, you know, all my various whittling downs. And then when I get it down to a point where I I get brave enough to say, well, maybe this is a rough cut, but you're still, of course, just working with one person and the material for that one person. So It's honestly just a process of downloading it into your head. Even if you don't remember exactly what happened or what the person said, it does kind of like just get back into the back of your brain. And that's where the transcripts become so useful is you'll say, you know, I know somebody talked about a leopard who escaped and went to a neighbor's place. And, you know, assuming you've got really lovely transcripts, you can often find that. They transcribed all the sit down interviews. But as we went through, you know, all those mounds and mounds of material, they were all often, you know, on the fly <laughs> OTF scenes that weren't necessarily transcribed because it was just a spontaneous interview. And I would often say, hey, guys, can you go ahead and transcribe this? Because I can tell this is going to be useful. There's also, I guess, a service, an electronic service where you can do a down and dirty transcription. But it... Often gives you comical results. So I think usually having a human being doing it is a good thing. But that's it. And then, you know, I'm very old-fashioned. I use index cards. We would put those on a board. The problem with Tiger King is it became so big we couldn't quite do that for the whole series. But we would have a piece of foam core and some index, index cards. We would certainly do that for each episode. The episodes were fairly fluid for a long time. We didn't know exactly how many episodes we were going to do, so things moved around quite a bit. We used Google Docs. We tried using something called Trello, which is an online index card Program that was not as flexible as I hoped. It's almost there. So, we use techniques like that to kind of figure it out. And of course, you're looking for, you know, the tension, you're looking for conflict. You can get a little creative sometimes with taking scenes out of sequence if they, you know, if it's not obviously creating a a fact checking issue. But, you know, certainly with Tiger King, we are not presenting a chronological story. You know, we're doing broad strokes and then deep dives into different parts. And, you know, there's nothing about that project that tells you this is. Strictly speaking, chronological. So you can go a bit out of sequence if it helps the story. And so it's it's really just a chipping away process. You know, I think some people have a skill more than others. I'm lucky my dad was a book editor. And so I think I inherited a part of my brain that kind of helps shape stories so to take someone else's you know, material and kind of shape it. But yeah, with documentaries, you really are the writer of the project. And so you are really working closely with the director and the producers. And, you know, frankly, I think a lot of times the producers are surprised by what you do with the material. You know, you come back and they're busy, they're running around. They don't always remember everything they filmed or didn't see a connection at the time. And, uh, you know, we're doing a lot of research, too. You know, I would stop and say, like, I really want to learn more about this. And so, you know, I'd look into something and learn more about it. Uh, I learned a lot about, you know, for example, um, forensic signature recognition stuff on the Tiger King. I did a lot of reading about that to try to, like, learn about, you know, some of the stuff with the paperwork from Carol's husband. And there were certain allegations that were made. And look, I know when I sign my name it's often a little different you know so sometimes you'll sort of like go off in some rabbit hole and it doesn't necessarily and that didn't end up in the film really even i mean we had big sequences built about all that stuff and it was just sort of too boring and too hard to understand so we ended up cutting it but that was an extremely long answer to your very simple question
0: (laughs) well it kind of highlights because you talked about working with the producers and them not knowing necessarily what they have because they have so much footage and eric good Initially, he had co-founded a turtle conservancy, and the doc was going to be about the dark side of the reptile world. And I'm wondering, were you involved that early in the project? And if so, how did that change come about for the story?
1: So, yeah, the original conception of the project was to be a TV series and that each episode would take on a different aspect of sort of how animals are used. There's sort of this idea of dominion that we as humans see that we can do what we want with animals. So it was sort of based loosely on that theme. And so, yeah, there was an episode about reptiles and they're the most smuggled animals on the planet, I believe. Maybe that pangolin we recently <laughs> Unfortunately, I've learned about that animal. But reptiles are very, very heavily smuggled. And then there was going to be an episode about tiger people. There's going to be an episode about monkey moms, you know, so things like that. And the inception of why it changed sort of is actually in the film. It's one of the earliest scenes. You see Eric Good, the director, talking to some sort of shady reptile people. And some guy shows up with a snow leopard. And that kind of literally led them on the path. I mean, so many documentaries kind of start that way and end up being... You know something else, or you follow a thread, and it becomes much more like about that. But once they started interviewing tiger people, I mean, they're just such crazy characters. I mean, you really have to be completely nuts to do that. And so, you know, one interview led to another, and one person would say, "Oh, you should really talk to this person," and that's really how it evolved. It just became kind of something that organically came from from a different idea. But I would. You know, if I had a dime for every documentary that started off doing one thing and switched gears at a certain point, I would uh, have enough money to make my own documentary. So
0: So was that change sort of? realized in the editing, or did they come down from Eric and the the other producers?
1: So the change, it was gradual because the project had so many kind of starts and stops. Both Eric and Rebecca the the other director, have very busy lives. Eric has a sanctuary he's running. And so things would start and stop. And they would often do a proposal. We'd do a sizzle reel. We'd show it to somebody. And then we'd wait a few weeks to get back. And I maybe had another project. And I did. I took on other projects for months at a time, I was working on Michael Moore's feature film. And then Harvey Weinstein got into a little bit of trouble. And uh, the Weinstein company was actually um, funding Michael's film at that point. So he didn't want to have anything to do with him. So he put the whole project on hiatus for six months. So I was sort of going between these two, projects. And there was a lot of evolution between those periods of time when we weren't working. So, you know, there was a cut we called, uh, I think CNN passed on something at one point on the sizzle reel. And there was something we decided to maybe do it as a feature doc. And we were calling that perhaps too optimistically, the HBO cut. Although I don't know if HBO... I think it was... They did see at some point some version of it and they passed. And so then there was actually a pilot done that was sort of close to the original idea and CNN actually produced that. I was not involved in that project. I was working on the Michael Moore film at the time. And that went to, you know, they did a cut, they did a pilot and it they didn't pick it up. So it just was one of those things that sort of organically over enough time started to happen. And fortunately for this project, Eric Good had the funds available to do this, to continue filming without really knowing where it was going to end up. And that's unusual on a project. But he's a guy of some means, and he decided to invest heavily in this. And so, you know, he filmed a lot of people. There's lots of characters who just, for whatever reason, just never ended up in the project. We really honed it down to a relative few. I can talk a little bit about that as well, but that more or less answers your question, I think.
0: I'd love to get to the other characters, but I do have a few questions about Rick Kirkham. Sure. Now, in your other interviews, you said you were able to get that footage approximately five months before the locked picture. I'm wondering how much restructuring had to occur because of that. How did it affect your original cuts? Was the story drastically overhauled or?
1: So there's a little bit of confusion about that with the footage.
0: So Rick's
1: footage that he shot for Joe's project. We never got that. That still is missing. What we did get was a long interview, like a probably close to four hour interview with Rick. And what Rick did is he allowed us to really frame things in a way that we were struggling with. And because he was filmed relatively late in the process, I mean, I believe it was, I don't know, I think like around April of the year that we finished. So and we finished and primarily most of the editing was done by November, December. I mean, we're still tweaking, but, you know, most of it was done by then. So, yeah, we only had about six months of Rick time, you know, so we went into that. Also asking him questions, knowing that, well, here's a spot where we on, we need, you know, to do this. So it was done with some deliberacy. Is that a word? <laughs> um, but he also went off on all these crazy tangents. And so, yes, of course, you know, for example, the scene about the alligator house slash Joe's studio burning down, that scene completely changed shape once we had his interview because he brought a perspective to it that we had not even heard. And so that scene went through a number of incarnations and it doesn't totally conclude who set the fire, but it definitely gives you a lot of, a lot to chew on in there. So I would say when people are late arrivals like that, a lot of times you're going in there with an agenda. We need to get this guy to talk about this or her to talk about this. And so you are sometimes just literally saying, oh, great. Now we have this piece that helps this. And sometimes you're lucky and it serves that function. Obviously with Rick, he provided a lot of information that did become new for us. And I would say sometimes it's easier to take something that's brand new and say, oh my God, here's the 10 places we can use this than to struggle with old material. (laughs) You know, there's a freshness to it. And it's not necessarily a bad thing for things to come at the last minute. I think that's often true that something will come in and it just becomes like, oh my God, we didn't have this film until we had this interview. And how did we even think we had a film before, you know, that happened? And so I've had that experience a number of times.
0: Well, he gives such a great hook at the start. That's why I was like, whoa, where did he give such a good way of pulling us in?
1: He does. If people have compared it to like Coen Brothers and, you know, maybe he's got the hat and he's got the gravelly voice and you kind of believe him. I mean, frankly, there was a lot of stuff he said that we knew he had got, you know, at least slightly wrong or everybody's involved in. The story has heard so many stories, it kind of, I think, meshes in with their own experience. And so there were times that we thought, oh, he's saying this. And I, I know that for a fact that that's not quite right. I could see why he thought that. But, you know, I guess it was in a way good that he came late because we were able to kind of pull some of that stuff out and not use it because it wasn't accurate. But yeah, he was a, a late addition. Another late addition was Barbara Fisher, who is the lady who uh, talks a lot about Doc behind the scenes at Doc Antle's place in terms of the sort of the cult-like stuff. She she was just a few months before Rick, and I spent a lot of time working on her material and basically kind of just building the stories. It, and Yeah, I'm sorry, go ahead.
0: I was going to say, is she okay, basically? <laughs> because I feel like she probably went through a lot in her experience.
1: She did. A lot of the characters, I mean, Rick talks about that a little bit too. It was almost like PTSD, this experience. I know Barbara was scared when it came out. She went into hiding. She was frightened of how Doc might react. People have not come out publicly against him before. And so it was um, a little spooky for her, but um, she's fine. I imagine she's fine.
0: Now to talk about the characters that were removed or cut out, who were some of the characters that got edited out?
1: it was something netflix kind of pushed us towards so the influence of netflix when they got involved and again that was relatively late i think we were teasing them there was a lot of flirting back and forth in the spring of 2019 and i'm not seeing emails you know about actual meetings with netflix until early july of 2019 and again we wrapped up primary editing in you know november really technically i mean we didn't actually finish editing <laughs> until sometime in january but i mean it was all tweaking stuff so The things that they pushed us towards were really keeping the tension going, having effective cliffhangers was something that was important for them. And then they said they really pushed us towards not introducing characters who just appear as kind of one-offs. And so we did have a number of people. There's a really great story that a guy named Jeff Johnson, Jeff Johnson, I believe his name is. And he tells a story about Joe dealing with a mother who had just had cubs and she was refusing to allow anybody access to get the cubs. And it's a really poignant story. And for me, it was something I wanted to include because it really helped kind of cement why this is so wrong. And, you know, the story involves Joe having to like, you know, use a gun to shoot at the ground and fire hoses and fire extinguishers. And eventually he had to use a, a tranquilizer dart to sedate The mama lion, mama tiger, rather. But the problem was it was a scene told by this guy who we really didn't know. And it was also sort of filmed sort of poorly, uh, unfortunately. Just the nature of it was filmed in a hotel room and it just kind of looked crappy. And so there were times when um, Chris Smith, who was one of the producers who has done a lot of stuff for Netflix, you know, he would say, look, they have a real premium doc aesthetic. And so, yes, you can have crappy looking footage if it's something off YouTube or something. There's a reason for it to look crappy. But when you do the stuff that's like supposed to be, you know, what the directors deliberately sat down and captured, they kind of want to see something that looks good. So he got cut out. It was a great story by a character who we didn't know. And so I think that's partially what makes these things binge worthy is that you do really feel like you get to know the characters. And so there definitely are other people who tell really interesting or compelling stories, but it was just too difficult to get them in. And it's also like once you do a good job in a particular episode of not relying on these random ancillary characters then it would be odd to all of a sudden have them. So it become kind of this thing that you just sort of say, let's really see what we can do without this person. There are a few examples. If you actually scrub through it, you will occasionally see somebody who just says something and nobody else did. And so we will use them. But that was a a concerted effort. And that's just a stylistic thing. And, you know, Netflix was buying it. And they do want to give filmmakers freedom, but they also... Definitely push hard in certain directions. Another thing that they pushed us in is really being careful not to show too much animal cruelty. They didn't want it to be, you know, sort of a vapid project just about, you know, reality TV, rednecks fighting. They didn't want that. They wanted something that had some pithy points to make. But they said animal cruelty is one of the things that people, if they see it, they will just turn off. And so we ended up minimizing a lot of that. And so that was kind of um, a chipping away process. And, you know, so so certain editorial decisions you just make because at a certain point you have a client and you're working with that client. So that's kind of um, can be a bummer, but obviously the project is successful. And so I think Netflix is very, they're very good at, at figuring out what's going to make people want to watch things. So I think their advice definitely served their purpose of getting a binge-worthy series. And, you know, it could be argued that maybe... It could have been uh, more informative or it could have been more educational if we had not made it as quite as binge worthy. And so where you strike the balance is definitely challenging.
0: It's very interesting because I almost feel like removing people that aren't going to be throughout makes it almost like you're a part of a group because you're constantly seeing these people. So it almost makes people, by the sounds of it, more comfortable to continue watching in a weird way, if that makes sense. (laughs)
1: Yeah, a lot of really good. I mean, look, there's all sorts of different documentaries, but a lot of them you do get very attached to characters. Typically, I mean, it's not unusual to have a documentary. It's just about one character and you really get to know that person. So I get it. You're still telling a story. I mean, in a way, it's not that different from telling a story of a scripted film. I mean, you're kind of addressing similar problems, you know, in terms of keeping an audience engaged and yeah.
0: And now, you said earlier that the footage sort of came in slowly and throughout the various years that you were making this, and it sounds like you also were changing it as they were searching for a broadcaster, so different types of lengths and various things. How do you keep a focus on your structure when it's constantly changing and you might not know what's coming?
1: Well, you do the best with what you have at the time and with what the plan is. I mean, the nice thing is you don't know when you're working on a structure that it's going to get tossed. So (laughs) you do what you can and you you know do your best you can. I mean, I will say, you know, the feature length version that we had that we called the HBO cut was not good. It just sort of fizzled out. And, you know, I mean, we had elements. I mean, Joe at that point. You know, hadn't been arrested. It just sort of didn't have much of a you know didn't have much of a story really. And even as it is now, if you watch it, there's not a lot of story that's actually going on in there. I mean, you hear a lot of stories, and you know, there's definitely a a flow. But it is unusual in that a lot of what you're watching is just through sort of these deep dives and characters and their world, and the world is so interesting. So one nice thing in terms of your restructuring something is you still have that to fall back on. You know, again, we were pushing for five episodes and then it ended up being seven so these scenes did move around but we knew that within the context of that scene you've got a block that's maybe five or seven minutes that's like it's just a great little piece that wherever it lands it's uh, great and so as long as you have a reasonably smooth way to get in and out of it it's not like you have to just toss that out i mean of course there's subtle things within the scene that might have had to change. But I will say, I mean, I I can't speak from tremendous experience because this is the first time I've done a doc series like this. I've worked on feature docs, but, you know, I would imagine a a typical doc series would be much more, it would have a much more structured and more traditional approach, but I don't know. It's sort of like a little bit of a new medium, you know, they've only kind of been a thing, if you will, for a couple of years and it takes a couple of years to put them together. So, you know, I know on a typical documentary, you of course do lots and lots of restructuring. I mean, you're always trying different things, different ways of telling the story um you know i think about a film like earl morse's the fog of war i mean we tried so many different ways to structure it and then we finally kind of did the simple thing of just having chapter headings (laughs) and you know you can just sort of go to a different thing and it became kind of the structure that made the most amount of sense for that i mean that's you know, an old man telling a story that spanned 80 years you know it was too boring to tell chronologically but you know, it just becomes, I guess, on a bigger scale when you're talking about a series. But I think the answer is you just, you deal with the card you're dealt. And there's no right answer, unfortunately. But I guess people will, you know, get more and more skilled at this. We did work with a fellow named Daniel Culler who came in. So so our core group was myself. I had worked on it the longest. Nicholas Biagetti. And there's Dillian Hansen. I can't I even pronounce his last name. I never... <laughs> There's Dylan. (laughs) And then we brought in Camilla and Pedro, who we call Pepe, as they were sort of junior editors and they came on later on. And then Jeff Richman and Daniel Kohler were kind of brought in as like they were there to kind of help us shape. And they worked on for shorter periods, but fairly intense periods. And Daniel, in particular, this is what he does. He goes around and he's sort of a script doctor for documentaries, if you will. So he'll come in and really kind of break down the he'll help you get perspective on it. And so he was very helpful in terms of helping us shape the story. He didn't know the material, so he only knew what he saw. And so he would often say something and I'd say, oh, well, that reminds me of the scene we never put together or this scene we cut a while ago. And he'd say, oh, well, that sounds great, blah, blah, blah. So he wasn't as in the trenches in terms of actual like sitting in front of the avid, although he did on some stuff. So he was very helpful That respect. And then, of course, the producers. And you know, you've got different producers with different opinions, but Chris Smith, since he had come on the project fairly late, he had a similar perspective on not necessarily having seen the material for years and it was fresher for him. So he was helpful as someone to bounce things off of. And, um, you know, he was also one nice thing about Chris is he would just say he liked the nonsensical sometimes actually everybody sort of did. I know Eric good really loves, he's loves visuals and he just loves things, you know, things like the jet ski scene, which is so popular. He just loves weird stuff like that, you know, sort of gonzo style filmmaking where you just, for no particularly good reason, it's just pleasing to the eye. You might cut to something. And so a lot of that kind of slow motion sort of eye candy, weird sort of surreal looking stuff is definitely Eric's, brainchild. And Chris was great because sometimes he would just say, I don't care if it doesn't make sense. I just sort of like that scene. I like the vibe of it. And so you just, the whole thing is a cocktail, right? You, <laughs> you, you work on it. And then there's another answer, which is that at some point you have to finish. And sometimes it's just, it is baked the way it's baked at the time you say, well, we have to picture lock today. And so by that point, you've hashed and rehashed and rehashed. And there's always a good reason to put something back in or take it back out. But there is always, you know, <laughs> the idea that, well, maybe it's something we can talk about on the podcast about why we took that scene out or or kept it in. But yeah, there is just the reality. I mean, it's a business and you're hired to do a job and it does come to an end. And so there's also that that aspect of you've done the best you can, but sometimes you just have to say, time to move on.
0: Was there a particular scene that ended up getting put on the cutting room floor that you wish stayed in?
1: Yeah. There's a scene we really struggled with, which is that talks all about Joe's, uh, that he's not really singing on his songs. And we had so many different locations for that. And it's just, it was one of these things that really didn't serve any story purpose. There's also a scene that talks about Joe's, uh, he's all these illnesses. And we talked about why he walked around with his brace for one of his legs. And it kind of explained that. And we had it in and out. And you often also have problems with just like the lawyers, you know, they'll come in with fact checking. And Joe is sort of like Donald Trump is always like, it's a kernel of truth to everything he says, although a lot of it (laughs) might not be true. And so with Joe, we didn't feel comfortable saying he has all these fake illnesses. And similar with the songs, we got some late breaking news that he did actually write some of the songs or he may have sung background or his voice is mixed in there. It, It became confusing. Confusing, And we didn't want to get into a lawsuit. So sometimes you have to cut things for those purposes. So those are two scenes that stand out as regrettable.
0: You've said in another interview that he was the most challenging character to edit in the show. And is that because he's such an unreliable narrator?
1: Yeah, I mean, Joe's a manipulator. And, you know, the hope is that the audience is sophisticated enough to realize that he's he is unreliable, that he has an agenda and that he you know, at a certain point, you can't sit there and counteract everything the guy says, and you may not have it anyway. So we kind of went with it. We show very early on, as you see him being videotaped eating lunch, you know, <laughs> that this is a guy that he's a showman. He wants to be in front of the camera. And so we felt comfortable letting him make claims that we knew weren't true, but we hoped that the audience would be sophisticated enough to realize, well, look, he's, I know he's saying this, but I know that this should just be, you know, information that I should perhaps take with a grain of salt. And I think in retrospect, that, we maybe should have backed off on that a little bit or, or pushed back against Joe a bit more because he is such a strong personality. And he's also just because of the just the sheer amount of footage we had of him between our filming, but also all the acquired footage from his archive. Even with the missing burned footage, we still had tons and tons and tons and tons of hard drives with crazy footage of him. So we just literally just had... Lots of his material. So he became kind of the spine. I mean, I think we realized that pretty early on. And that's tough. It's like, how do you deal with a... The person who's your spine, but isn't completely reliable as a source of information, and he's charming. You know, I mean, as bad as as he is, all the things you see him doing. I mean, you see him doing plenty of bad things. You know, shooting at people, and you know, using horrible language and being very misogynistic. But he has a childlike charm to him that obviously people latched onto, and now they're <laughs> trying to get Trump to pardon him. There's a uh, bus that's traveling the country trying to get that to happen. So that was certainly not something we anticipated, or thought it would ever happen
0: now there was a moment in the i think it's in the last episode or second last episode where someone talks about joe exotics early when he first started the zoo and they talk about how he was interested in almost being like the version of carol right where he's protecting animals or is using it as like a sanctuary and then he verges off it seems like if i was editing it i'd be like oh that's the story initially like seeing this guy go crazy so how did not crazy but become more eccentric yeah what were the discussions around that like how come you guys didn't go for that story arc as opposed to the one you chose
1: to be honest i don't know that we had enough material of those early days to really sell that and there was some controversy involving that i know eric good who was one of the directors felt that it was disingenuous that joe was always from the beginning that he was always selling the animals there was something kind of poetic about this idea that joe and carol kind of switched places and Sometimes you just have to go with the kind of like the poeticness of something. I think if we had started that way, it would have been both Carol and, you know, because Carol obviously is, you know, the first time you see her, you see her at her sanctuary. I, I just think it's more interesting to sort of see where people are today and then do the deep dive into their past. And so you learn that Carol was buying and breeding and having people pet the animals. And, you know, we didn't even really include this fact, but she was still having people interacting with the animals up until 2004. So it's not even like that it was decades, <laughs> you know, not quite two decades of her evolution. So I think that was the answer is, is that there was no way we could really, we, we just didn't have the material to show young young Joe. And and the quality of the material was also quite poor. And Joe didn't talk that much about that like i think he would have felt like he was uh being hypocritical if he expressed that so we found this early footage of him and we thought this is amazing it's like you pull back the curtain and you realize at the last minute that yeah that was the idea is that these two characters have kind of switched places with each other
0: well and it's it worked and that's why i was like it's so interesting because they always say every you give a project to multiple editors you'll get different films so i was always wondering what that decision process was
1: There are things that I would see and I would just say, I want this. I mean, I'm sure all the editors did this, but it's just speaking for myself. There were things that I saw that thought we've got to include this. And for me, the story about Joe talking about when he was ending his relationship with the zoo and he placed his chimps and he placed them in a, you know, at a a proper place called the Great Ape Sanctuary, I think in Florida. Anyway, and, and he realized that he had kept them separate all these years. And as soon as they were there after a short period, they were together and hugging and he realized that he had I mean, when I saw that, I just thought, well, this is the story. He has this sort of epiphany, although quite late. And then I found this footage of someone touching this chimp's hand. And I just thought this is like the visual that goes with this, what we're hearing. And actually, if you watch it carefully, at the end of the footage, a human hand kind of came in. I guess you see a hand kind of a chimp hand kind of reaching and see a human hand withdraw, I believe. And then you see this chimp hand kind of continues to reach and sort of reaches for that connection. Well, in the actual footage, the human hand did come in again at one point, kind of like popped in and out of the frame. And I just thought, oh, let's paint that out because it's just so great to just see this image of this hand kind of reaching out. And so there were things like that. I thought the footage of Joe being early and saying things like what you heard Carol say, I just thought that's just so crazy that he used to talk the way she does, and I just thought it's got to be in. So I pushed hard for that. You know, I realize like real life is not always so clean, and I'm sure he was quite bad back then as well. But I still think that as a human story that you're telling a story about humans, I still think that you can take that artistic license and sort of simplify the story and kind of include that. I think that's fair.
0: Now I have one last question that I like to ask everyone to interview, and that's what's your favorite guilty pleasure film to watch?
1: Ha uh-huh. ha. Um, guilty pleasure. I mean, I love dumb action movies. <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing better than sitting at the end of a day of like struggling with these difficult decisions on a documentary and then just sitting down and just watching a dumb action film is definitely a guilty pleasure. I also love one of my favorite movies of all time is American Movie, which Chris Smith, uh, one of our producers, did. That movie's just so, so wonderful about this, you know, this guy who's trying to make this epic horror film and just has everything in his life just piles up against him.
0: Have you seen uh, Fubar?
1: Fubar. No. Sounds like I should.
0: I think you'll really like that if you like American movie. Okay. I don't know if I should tell you anything about it unless I <laughs> just let you watch it.
1: Yeah, don't, don't. I'm one of those people like I don't even really like watching trailers. Yeah.
0: All right. So I'll leave it like that. And they, it was so good that they made a sequel to it. Oh. Which is rare for a mockumentary. Oh, I love it. Thank you so much for letting me interview. Absolutely. Have a good day. So that was my interview with Doug Abel. I'd like to thank Doug Abel. I'd also like to thank Netflix for setting this up. I'm your host, Gordon Burkell. Thanks for listening.